Paul Tillich was a 20th century Christian theologian. And Tillich was one of those guys who looked around and he thought that the church had just kind of worn out certain words. And so he wanted to develop these new words just to help people today understand these basic Christian doctrines and what they really mean and how they really work. And one of the words that he wanted to help Christians really understand was the word faith. And for Tillich, faith is your ultimate concern. What is it that you think about? What is it that governs your decisions? What is it that gives your life purpose and meaning? What is it that you just look to and you orient your life to? What is your ultimate concern? Because as Tillich would say, once you've identified your ultimate concern, you've identified your God. In our latest election, exit polls show that at least when it comes to who to vote for, Americans' ultimate concern was either economic issues or health care. I mean, and that rings true for a lot of us, doesn't it? I mean, people think about how do, how do I get ahead? How's the economic turnaround going? How, what's the job level like? What, what are our taxes going to be like? Or we think about the health issue. What's going on with the pandemic? How about healthcare costs? Do we have access to good healthcare? What about prices of prescription medications? Yeah, when things are going well or tough, we tend to look at economics. But then when a loved one is sick, well, healthcare becomes really important. Those two things often are, for a lot of people, our ultimate concern. Jesus. He heard that his cousin, John the Baptizer, had been unjustly arrested because of this evil government at the time. And so Jesus, he's going to go to Galilee. Jesus is a Jewish citizen. And at this time, when his his cousin is arrested and the government is evil, he's going to show as a good citizen what his ultimate concern really is. He's going to model for us as citizens what our ultimate concern really ought to be. Let's go ahead. We'll check it out. Matthew chapter 4, verses 12 through 17. Matthew writes, Now when Jesus heard that John had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali. So that was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way to the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and and the shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Word comes to Jesus that John has been arrested, and so Jesus, he withdraws into Galilee. Now, you need to understand that Galilee and Judea, they're they're very different kind of places. Judea is down in the south, Galilee is up in the north, and in between, they're separated by this non-Jewish province, Samaria. And because of this distinction, Judea and Galilee, well, they were very different places. Ethnically, Judea was basically all Jewish. Up in Galilee, well, you remember the former Assyrian conquest that had come in when Galilee was a part of the northern kingdom? Well, that meant that there were pockets of conservative Jews, and there were also large populations of Gentiles. This is the Galilee of the Gentiles. And so because of this, there's this Gentile influence on this area. It's much more of a pagan type of society. And because of the influence of the Gentiles and the 
province of Galilee, well, the Galilean Jews, they spoke with a different accent than the Judean Jews. Economically, Galilee was thriving. It was the place to be. Many of the bigger cities in Israel were in Galilee. The land was much more fertile. The fishing was better. The economics were thriving in Galilee. But what you end up when you have these two different places is this communal prejudice that begins to take place, primarily from the Judean Jews in the south. They're looking up at their Galilean Jews in the north, and they think they're better than them. They think that they're more uh, committed to Jewish principles, to Jewish law. They think that the Galileans up in the north, that they were sellouts, that they mixed uh, their law and then also kind of intermingled with the Gentiles too much, that they've been too influenced by that type of culture. And these attitudes, they just get exacerbated and reinforced because the place of the temple and the place of theological learning and everything... Well, that was in Jerusalem. That was in Judea. Galilee is a long way from Jerusalem in those days. And so Matthew, he tells this Jewish audience about this Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth being in Galilee. This is not exactly a selling point to most Jews. And the fact that Jesus is going to leave Judea and go back to Galilee, well, that appears to be out of step with, with the Jewish audience because any Jew knows that if you really want to have influence on the Jewish population, well, Judea is the place to be. Jerusalem is the place to be. That's where you want to be, not Galilee. And yet Jesus hears that John is arrested, and so he withdraws to Galilee. Now, several times before this, Matthew has used that term, withdraw. And every time he uses it, it's because something bad has happened. And the negative issue in this case is the fact that his cousin, John the Baptist, has been imprisoned. Matthew, he doesn't explain why John was arrested, most likely because his audience already knew. I mean, everybody already knew what was going on. You had a ruler in Galilee, his name was Herod the Tetrarch or Herod Antipas, and he was a Roman-installed leader over Galilee. He wasn't Roman, and he wasn't Jewish, and it, the issue at hand here is there's John the baptizer. And John, he's going around and he's publicly condemning Herod because Herod has, is having this affair with his half-brother's wife, Herodias, who he eventually marries. And so John the Baptist, he's publicly condemning him down in Judea, saying that this Herod from the north, he's violating Jewish law. And, he, and John has a crowd. I mean, people are following John. He's making disciples. He's preaching. Repent. The kingdom of heaven is near. And so all this is happening. And Herod hears about this. He sees this. Here's a guy who's creating a movement, a guy who has people following him. And a guy who's publicly condemning him. And so for political reasons, Herod probably pulls some strings and he's able to have John the baptizer imprisoned. Now, John's ministry uh, was not in Galilee. It was in Judea. And the Judeans loved John. And he had a following there. They, they, they liked him. So we read that Jesus withdraws from Judea and goes up to Galilee. And we wonder, okay, what's this all about? Because John wasn't from Galilee. He's preaching in Judea. 
And so we wonder, okay, is Jesus, is he trying to avoid any kind of trouble at this point? But that's not it, because Herod ruled in Galilee. Herod's capital city is Tiberias. That's only eight miles down the coast from Capernaum, the place where Jesus is really going to establish his home base of ministry. And he's not going to the people who had followed John. He's not trying to reach out to the people that John had discipled and speak into their lives and all of this kind of thing, because John wasn't talking to Galileans. He was talking to Judeans. And so why does Jesus go to Galilee? Why would, why does he go to the center of Herod's realm? Well, in Matthew's gospel, you have to understand that Matthew is unfolding this kind of ominous plot because right before this, you have Jesus' temptations in the, in the Judean wilderness. And they alert us to this spiritual conflict that rages between the plans of God and the attacks of Satan. And so during this time, John the Baptist, he's preaching and part of his preaching is the condemnation of the hypocrisy of Jewish leadership. And he's letting everyone know, hey, the message of God's kingdom, it collides with the activities of this religious establishment. And so with this political climate and this religious climate in, in view, just political unrest and empty religion, Jesus goes to the place where the storm is brewing the most. I mean, he goes right to the center of the storm and he shares where true hope can really be found. See, there's something to learn from that. Jesus knew that the kingdom that he was offering, it could conquer any present worry. It could conquer any present fear. Jesus knew that being focused on this kingdom, the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven, that that was one of the most beneficial, the most beneficial thing that he could do in his, in his life. Because Jesus, he could have done anything right then. I mean, he could have come in and he could have established this moral, ethical government. He could have come in and he could have driven out all the false teachers in the temple. He could have established good Jewish leaders. Instead, he goes to this place of unrest and he shares hope. He shares purpose. See, in a broken culture, there's a lot of good things that we as Christians can do. A lot of good things that we as Christians should do. I mean, we need Christian businessmen and women who establish ethical businesses and provide services and products that benefit our society. We need that. We need Christian politicians who govern according to the truths of God's word, who restrain evil and promote good. We need people in government like that. We need Christian pastors who simply proclaim the truths of the scripture and equip the saints to do the work of ministry. We need people like that. However, we must be convinced that the good news of the gospel is what ultimately brings hope to even the darkest of places. See, as Christians, this is what, this is who we are. It's not just what we do. It's for all of us. We are convinced that the good news of the gospel brings hope to even the darkest of places. Now, we've talked a lot about it before, but in the time of Jesus' ministry, the first good news that Jesus shares, it's often not simply the death, burial, resurrection, who he was. No, often the first good news that Jesus would share 
He's turning water into wine. He's allowing a blind person to see. He's just walking along the road and having a conversation with a couple of guys who are depressed. Sometimes the first good news that we share is coming alongside people and being their friends so that then they're ready to hear the message. Sometimes the first good news that the people need to hear is you meeting a need that they have in their life. And then they're ready for the even better news of a savior who meets the deepest need in their life. You know, the prophet, he spoke about Jesus, a Messiah who would come and who would bind up the brokenhearted. That's what we do. That's kind of our first step in sharing the gospel is to bind up the brokenhearted by bringing a little good news. Well, Jesus goes back to Galilee. Galilee, it's the center of the storm, place of political unrest. You got evil government, Jew, Gentile, all kinds of stuff going on. Galilee, it's a rough place, a hard place in many ways. And Jesus goes back there and he preaches the message that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's at hand in the person of Jesus Christ himself. And the, where he goes back to Galilee... Well, his hometown of Nazareth, perhaps, and we know from Luke's gospel that that's where his mother, brothers, sisters were still living. And so he goes back there. Matthew doesn't really tell us a lot about it. You get the idea that Jesus kind of gets there and then he leaves. But Luke fills in the details a little bit for us. He tells us that, that, that Jesus went there and he began preaching in the synagogues and the people, they're looking at him and they're saying, hey, aren't you Joseph's boy? I mean, you're just a carpenter's son. Who who do you think you are? I mean, your teaching's cool, but why are we going to follow what you're saying? We know who you are. We know your story. And so Jesus, he moves on. He doesn't give up. Notice that he does not give up. He simply moves on to another place where he can be more impactful. Well, people really will listen. He moved on. You know, that's the same thing that we need to learn sometimes. It's not that we give up and throw in the towel, you know, we're hanging out with people, we're sharing the hope, the, this message of truth, and we're binding up the needs of the brokenhearted and showing how this reality in our lives reorients everything that this really is our ultimate concern. But sometimes rejection happens and we need to move on, not give up. Remember when Jesus was commissioning off his disciples, he sent them in pairs. You remember? Two, they, they went off in pairs. And the first thing they were to do is to find a person of peace in that, in that town where they could really set up a home base of ministry. Because they had nothing. Jesus sent them essentially with just the clothes on their backs. They had no food. They had no money. They just go and they find this person of peace where they can stay and they can plant and grow a ministry. Well, Jesus gave them this instruction. If you can't find a person of peace there, if you're just rejected, if it doesn't work out, what are you supposed to do? Shake the dust off your feet and you go to the next town. You keep on moving. You don't give up. You find a place where you can plant and establish ministry. See, we got to be prepared to do the same thing. We, we, we want to give our lives to, to ministry, to sharing this hope of Jesus. And we got to find a place where we can do that. And if we try, we, we try to bind up the brokenhearted, we come along, we try to build friendships, find people at peace. But if we can, if we're just met with rejection after rejection, we don't give up. We don't throw in the towel and just say, well, I guess I'm not a disciple maker. I guess that's not my mission. 
No, it's not your mission. It's who you are. You have been called with the purpose, made with the purpose, created to do this. And if it doesn't work here, like Jesus, like the disciples, you move to the next place. You keep sharing. You keep going. We don't give up. This is who we are. And so... I believe Jesus is the best citizen there ever was, right? Because he's the best at everything. And he knew the best thing that he could do for his hometown, Nazareth, was to move on, was to wait, was to, to impact other people. And these other people could later come back to Nazareth. He knew the best thing that he could do was to go to the next town and start sharing about this kingdom there. And so he understands, I think, as well as us, that going can be scary. I mean, nobody wants to be rejected. Nobody wants to have to start over. So sometimes we look for the easier thing. You know, Jesus, he gives us this encouragement that when we go, we don't go alone, that he is with us. And if they reject what it is we're saying, they're not really rejecting us. They're rejecting him. The biggest influence you will ever have is to influence someone to be a disciple maker of Jesus, to be a disciple who they themselves make disciples. That's the greatest influence you'll ever have on this earth. So Jesus is going to move on from Nazareth and he's going to set up his home base of ministry in the next town over in the town of Capernaum. And Capernaum, it was a Galilean frontier town. It was, it was deeply Jewish, but there were pockets of Gentiles all surrounding it. And so it's going to be in Capernaum, as well as the neighboring cities of Chorazin and Bethsaida, where Jesus is going to perform most of his miracles. And, you know, I talk a lot about how Jesus uses the church to go and to reach every corner of culture and every sphere of society. And he does. He uses his church to do that. But that doesn't mean that he's going to use each and every one of us to do that. I mean, we look at the example of the Apostle Paul and we see a man who's going on all of these missionary journeys and he's hopping in ships and going to these unknown areas of the Mediterranean and planting churches. And it sounds exciting. It also sounds scary. And we look and we think, I don't know that I could do that. I don't know that I'm cut out for that. Understand, look here at the ministry of Jesus. He's going to spend most of his ministry, of his public service here, of proclaiming, hey, the kingdom of God is at hand now. He's going to spend most of his time doing that in Capernaum, in the surrounding areas. You know, Capernaum was about the size of Portsmouth, really, in all of Galilee. It's really only about half the size of the Hampton Roads area. So it's in an area even smaller than maybe what our local outreach is, where Jesus is really going to have his most pointed influence at the time. And so a good citizen, understand this, a good citizen shines wherever it is that you're stationed. For Jesus, that was Galilee. Where is it for you? Is it, is, it's, at, it's wherever you live, work, study, and play. It's those places in life where God has stationed you right now. This area of Galilee, it was known as the land of Zebulun and Naphtali. Matthew, he's going to quote from Isaiah 9 and says that Jesus being stationed here, well, that fulfills prophecy. Uh, Zebulun and Naphtali, they were two of the 12 tribes of Israel that were stationed in the northernmost region of the Sea of Galilee. And so uh, Zebulun, it was a territory that housed Nazareth. 
and Naphtali was a neighboring territory that had that housed Capernaum. And so the way to the sea along the Jordan, well, that was a trade route in the day that ran through this region of the Mediterranean. Uh, so the impact of Jesus' ministry, even though he is stationed in this area, well, it's going to have a broad outreach. It's going to have an influence far beyond simply Capernaum and Galilee in general. It's going to go well beyond that because he's on this trade route. People are coming through the trade route. A lot of people coming through are Gentiles. And here's why that's important. Ever since the Assyrian campaign, this region experienced turmoil and this forced infiltration of Gentile influence. And so the Jewish inhabitants of the day in that area, in the area of Galilee, they were known as the people who were sitting in darkness because it's a description of Jews who were awaiting this deliverance because they're looking at this Gentile takeover and that's a culture of hopelessness. And so this is the darkest part of Israel. Galilee was the darkest part of Israel. It is the Jews who are sitting in darkness, awaiting to be removed, awaiting a Messiah who would deliver them from all of this, from this pagan Gentile influence. And it is to these Jews who are the first to see that this great light of God has dawned in the deliverance in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus brings hope to those who understand better than anyone else just the hopelessness of death in a Gentile pagan society. And it's going to be from this region that Jesus will send out disciples to carry out that commission to make disciples of all nations, even Gentiles. He's going to send them out from this spot. This is where the light dawns and the light will go forth. And at that time, for a Jewish audience, the last people you want to go forth to, the last people you want to engage and impact are the Gentiles. I mean, they're the ones who are bringing the darkness. They're the reason why you're sitting in darkness. I mean, for, from a Jewish perspective, the reason why the culture is dark, the Gentiles. The reason why the, the government is dark, the Gentiles. The reason why everything around you, the reason why you are sitting in darkness, it's because of the Gentiles, their corruption, their evil. And so there's this animosity that exists between the Jews and the Gentiles. And the Jews wanted a Jewish deliverance. And here comes Jesus. And he's this Jew who comes to fulfill first God's promises to the nation of Israel. And so he begins to preach first to the Jew. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's at hand in me. But then he also goes to the Galilee of the Gentiles, to the trade route along the Jordan, to let the Gentiles know in fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham that on account of him, all nations would be blessed. He goes straight to the darkness. And in the darkness, Jesus shines perhaps the brightest. You understand, part of what a good citizen does is it brings light to the darkness. A good citizen brings light to the darkness. We, we don't sit back and hide. We aren't like the Jews of Galilee who sit back and complain about how dark culture is. We don't sit back and just think about, oh, how good things used to be before the Assyrians came in, before this, things were different. Those were the good old days. 
the best is behind us. Well, you know, Jesus, he's the light of the world and he comes and he brings hope. This light dawns in a dark culture and he says now that he's made us children of light and that we are to let our light shine that we don't hold back because a good citizen brings light to the darkness see you understand that if our culture is dark it's not because the darkness won it's simply a failure of the light darkness cannot win it's always a failure of the light I've told you before, a light bulb goes out in your house and you call to your spouse, hey, honey, the light's out. The darkness got another one. No, you don't say that. You go and you find a light because you realize the darkness did not win. It's always a failure of the light. Darkness does not win. It's just that the light hides. We can't hide. Jesus did not hide. He went to the darkest element of society. And as a good citizen, the light dawned. Jesus, he could have stayed in Judea, you know. It would have been much more comfortable in Judea. That's where all the Jews were, faithful Jews. He could have had a ministry like John the Baptist, and John had quite a following. It could have been much easier in Judea if he would have just gone with the Jews and impacted the people there. But he went to the darkest part of Israel. He went to Galilee, the Galilee of the Gentiles. And in that darkness, the light shone brightest. And so he picked up the message that John had been preaching. He preached, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Jesus didn't go there to try to free John from prison. He didn't have any political motives. He knew the best thing he could do as a citizen for his hometown, Nazareth of Galilee, was to preach this message, was to introduce people to the hope of this kingdom, a kingdom that is already here in the person of Jesus and then yet not yet fully experienced the judgment and the grace of it all. And so these people, they're forced to make a decision. They're either going to be with Jesus or they're going to be against him. They're either going to adjust their ultimate concern and reorient their life towards this kingdom, this kingdom of heaven, or they're going to continue to orient their lives to this Galilean kingdom that they're in right now. That was the choice. We see what ultimately happens with the Roman trial and Jesus being brought out. Who do you choose, Jesus or Barabbas? And the crowds chanting, give us Barabbas. Yeah, the crowds are going to go against Jesus. They're not going to accept this message. He's going to be rejected. That might happen to you. Don't give up. They're not rejecting you. They're rejecting the one you're talking about, the hope that you have. It's hard to reorient your lives, you know. It's hard to put aside the, the concerns of today and have your ultimate concern be the God who holds the future of everything. That can be hard for a lot of people. Right now, you have an opportunity to shine. The church has an opportunity to shine, perhaps in a way that we haven't had in a while. You know, there's a lot of uneasiness out there right now with the results of the election and the future of our country and what's going to happen. There's a lot of uneasiness, a lot of worry, a lot of concern. You, 
You're the light of the world. God has given you this privilege because you are the most optimistic people on the planet because you know who holds the future. You serve a king, not of this world. You don't share the same worry, the same concern because you, you cast your cares on the Lord. You, you think about what is good and pleasing and perfect. You don't share the same worry, the same concern. You shine. That's what you do. Why? Because your ultimate concern is not just being a citizen of America, though you are, but also being this dual citizen, a citizen of God's kingdom. And because of that, your life is reoriented. Your ultimate concern is being a good citizen here, yes, but also being a good citizen of heaven. And you understand that changes everything. God's kingdom is our ultimate concern. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you do impact every aspect of our lives. And you impact what it looks like to be a good citizen right here, right now. And God, one of the best things that we can do as a good citizen in America is to understand that we are also citizens of your kingdom, citizens of the kingdom of heaven. And so God, because of that, we bring hope, we bring optimism, we bring joy to even the darkest places. And in those dark places... Well, that's often where you give us the privilege of shining the brightest. So God, help us not to hold back, but to shine. We need your help to do that. So we ask this by the power of your Holy Spirit and through the grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen.